On this week's 51%, we sit down with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Ani DeFranco to celebrate the 25th anniversary of her seminal live album, Living in Clip. Everything was such a fever pitch around me, and, you know, I think that that record was an entry point for a lot of people. WAMC's Josh Landis also speaks with singer Joan Osborne about how music has tied into her many years of abortion access activism. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production discussing women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. Our guest today is Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and musician Ani DeFranco. With a career spanning three decades and over 20 albums, DeFranco has established herself as both a feminist icon and the mother of the independent artist movement. She created her own record label, Righteous Babe Records, in the 1990s, and has released all of her music independently ever since. Her sound, while it can be generally described as folk, has pulled from a multitude of genres, from rock and punk to jazz and even electronica. Her subjects, the angst and determination of those coming-of-age years, difficult relationships, unrequited love, systemic oppression, and the struggle against traditional gender roles and society's sexuality labels. For the entirety of her career, DeFranco has spoken her mind and rocked out on her guitar, not afraid to break some strings along the way. My first introduction to DeFranco was through my college roommate. I remember the two of us driving through the night to Albany, New York, to see DeFranco on tour, and I recently got the chance, years later, to speak with DeFranco during her return to the region. This time, DeFranco was celebrating a bit of a milestone, the 25th anniversary of her iconic live album, Living in Clip. So this is a, a live, a double live album that I put out 25 years ago, or so they say. I play acoustic guitar, I call myself a folk singer, but my shows are kind of full frontal rock shows in a lot of ways. E- even when I'm playing solo, you know, just the way I abuse my guitars. Um, and so my audio engineer, who was recording these shows uh, nightly to ADAT tape, which is how I put together that record, Clipping, you know, when you go into the red, when stuff is getting too loud and you're driving the machines too hard, you know, and the red lights are all flashing, that's like clipping. And we were clipping all the amps, all the stage amps and redlining the recording gear. My engineer, Larry, came to me one night and he was like, yeah, man, the, like, the gear is like living in clip, man. You know? I was thinking, well, you can back it off. <laughs> uh, it gets loud, you know, in my world. It was metaphoric for me, you know, about just the life, my life at the time. You know, I felt like I was living in clip. I was just redlining. Everything was such a fever pitch. But as it happens, you know, I think that that record was 
an entry point for a lot of people. A lot of people took that record to heart and I feel like it broadened my audience and the people that I sing to and so I'm just really grateful and you know this 25 year reissue and putting it on vinyl and remastering even the digital it it's been this wonderful occasion to sort of connect with people and reflect together over the 25 years and and feel the love so just super grateful looking back on your career how do you feel about the way that the industry has changed in that time with the rise of streaming services and the diminishing of record companies well they got what they deserved, <laughs> you know, which is an ending, hopefully, and not in all ways, um, but a real splintering of the monopoly of the major label, of the indentured servitude of artists to these huge business entities. Certainly, technology has allowed people in many ways, in many paths to you know, own their own lives and make their own decisions and not be beholden or controlled. Back in the 90s, when I was on that tip myself, it was, you know, I mean, I started my own label in 1990. So it was very much pre-internet. And I think I introduced this idea of screw the major labels and big business controlling and commodifying and commercializing and chewing up and regurgitating and spitting back out art and artists. And, you know, I just think that those interests often conflict, you know, I'm thrilled that the technology allows so many more people to do it in so many more ways, but I feel like I'm living proof that you don't even need that technology to remain independent and, you know, thwart that system. I do feel like in some ways that technology is sort of the behemoth in control now, though. Like when you see the way artists are compensated on streaming services and the pressure on artists to go viral or maintain a presence online. I actually went to school for a music business myself, but the landscape online is just rapidly changing. I don't know if I could do it. And I honestly don't enjoy social media or I can't navigate social media to save my life. Yeah, I know. There's plenty of downsides. <laughs> and yeah, I'm really averse to being an active part of that constant conversation, which is so often not human and not loving and not right, not factual, not useful, not helpful. I really am averse to filming myself every day and all of that constant content generation, it's hard for an old dog like me to really come to terms with those new tricks. And I feel like that's sort of exhausting so many of us to not only do what we do, but to have to constantly promote it. It saps your energy and your focus away from the primary passion. I mean, some people, I, I think get off on it. And that's awesome. And that's sort of maybe is their focus. But for the rest of us, it's a double-edged sword. Activism has played a big role in your music from the very beginning. How has that changed over the years and with social media? The ways that we enact change, I guess. Yeah, sure. It's changed the way that everything works, you know, as we know. And again, double-edged sword possibilities for cutting out the middlemen of the media and disseminating information amongst ourselves, you know, that's 
radical and cool. Um, but, you know, the hidden controls of the algorithms, the bots, the fake news, you know, quote unquote, it's, it's all. And also the very passive and sort of insular nature of collectivism, you know, the whole thing is transformed. And I'm not even sure what the old school way of doing things means anymore when you can march on the street in the hundreds of thousands, even millions around the world to say what the will of the people is, and yet you will be ignored. You know, 80 some percent of Americans support a woman's right to choose, and yet we've lost it, many of us. And so when the will of the people means nothing against the money of corporations and the rich and powerful and the, you know, politics, our politicians are all in bed with the money. Everything must continue to evolve and we have to develop new effective techniques. So I hope that we can harness this technology for what it's worth and regulate the ways that it harms and damages. I think the role of the government is to protect people, the little guy, from exploitation and oppression. Counting on business to regulate itself doesn't work. Um, so I think all those voices out there saying that regulation is bad and government is bad and those are the oppressors, I think, well, look at your choices. <laughs> I was going to ask for your reaction to obviously the fall of Roe v. Wade this past summer. A lot of the people that I've spoken to who are abortion rights advocates have said that they were disappointed but not necessarily surprised by the decision. Yeah, it's not a surprise, but it's a shock, <laughs> you know, like, really, 21st century, forcing women to procreate, forcing unwanted and unsupported babies into this world, like, you know, and even 21st century, imagining that consciousness, it becoming itself is beholden on the identity of individuals or the projected identity that we put onto zygotes in women's wombs. Like it seems so fundamentally uh, misguided, you know, I mean, for me, and I just wrote another song about reproductive freedom, a new song that I'm playing live these days where I say, you know, Spirit can't be stopped, no matter who gives birth to who. Spirit won't be stopped. Like, it's not about this individual giving birth to that potential individual. It's about mediating suffering. It's about the path of least suffering is the path of God, is the path of righteousness, is whatever your metaphor is. You know, and it doesn't matter which side of the veil is what my song says, you know, that veil is an illusion. Yeah, I will bring the light. The revolution every life. I will bring the light. The revolution every life. I will bring the I was listening to your most recent record from 2021. For our listeners, it's called Revolutionary Love. Do you feel like that's the direction we should be turning to in our activism? What does revolutionary love look like? Yeah, absolutely. Love and compassion-centered movements. 
is is where it's at you know i mean especially in this day and age of outrage and divisiveness and you know everybody just jumping to kick the next person off the planet for a mistake or a perceived mistake or you know we're all being led into very dangerous territory of denying our connection to each other and dependency on each other and our oneness, you know, going back to that, we are each other. So, you know, revolutionary love, it's a complex idea, you know, um, and revolutionary love fundamentally is a thing we do in community, not on our own, you know, and everyone has a different role to play in it. But for those of us like myself who have spent their whole lives um, making themselves strong and whole, reaching out and trying to connect and make their community stronger and more whole, I feel like I'm in a position now to move on to that other role, which is to build bridges, to turn to my opponents and focus my revolutionary love there. And it involves just simple acts like remaining open and curious about your opponent, asking questions, um, tending the wound behind bad actions, bad words. Those are acts which are simultaneously respectful and loving and also revolutionary. I've got a question for you now that I tend to ask artists a lot. I think just personally, because I've been trying to get out of a writer's block. But what is it that drives your music and creativity, and how do you keep it going? Uh, yeah, I was, same thing, same ditto for me. And my biggest advice would be, be patient, be patient. That writer's block is part of the process. You feel like you're not moving, you should be generating, you should, maybe... The period of silence or searching is, that's an essential part of your process. You know, I mean, the pandemic for me was a pretty long dry spell. I wrote very few songs, any, I don't know. And I was in a crisis and feeling blocked and feeling like, am I done? Maybe I'm done. Maybe this is it. And then lo and behold, I'm back out touring now. I'm in the world. I'm engaging. I'm excited. And songs are coming again. And I feel so thrilled about that and happy that it's not over. But I know that I can't force my inspiration, accepting the lulls, being patient, and really trying to believe like this too is part of the process. It's not about generating something today. Mm -hmm. It's about becoming yourself. And when it's time to generate, you will. Well, you've been writing in other ways, too. I mean, you've got a children's book coming out next year called The Knowing with illustrations by Julia Matthew. What made you want to go that route? Well, you know, again, the pandemic, you know, pushed myself like so many into having to get creative about new ways to have a job if your job disappeared. My job disappeared in the pandemic, by and large. I I just developed all kind of side hustles, and one of them you know, they, I released a memoir a couple of years ago, and then the Young Readers Division of my publishing house contacted me after that and said, you know, if you'd ever consider making a kid's book, let us know. So when the pandemic hit, I thought, okay, I'm considering it. <laughs> I'm considering all kinds of things right now. And so I went for it. It's really different kind of writing for me. You know, it made me realize that my songs 
turn on so many things that are meaningless to children. You know, I mess with social conventions. I mess with, I turn cliches on their head. I have a lot of double entendre. I have a lot, you know, I use all these devices that involve having a deep knowledge of the culture that you're challenging. None of that means anything to kids beautifully, right? That's not the world they live in. So you have to speak very directly, more literally, more simply. So that is a just a different way of expressing for me. It was like a whole other concept of how to write. And so I made a book, at the, which is also a song, by the way. The challenge that my publisher put forth was to make a lullaby book. And so I made a literal lullaby. And then it's also in book form. And the song slash book is, well, kind of speaks to what we were talking about a minute ago about beneath all aspects of your identity, there is your consciousness, your oneness with all other living beings um, from rocks (laughs) to bugs to your family, your friends. So it's sort of trying to affirm for kids that you might be seen as this color and shape and size, and maybe you're told you're a good kid or a bad kid or a smart kid or a beautiful or ugly or whatever those outside forms of identity. Yes, you're all that, but you're more. You're something even more fundamental than that, and none of that can touch it. Well, lastly, something I like to ask guests on the show is what womanhood means to them. As you just said, with all the labels that are thrown on us, we're also so much more. And being a woman has so many personal, subjective definitions, too. So on that note, what does womanhood mean to you? Well, it means a lot of things. And I think one thing that it means is to be an agent of creation. I think that women... People who have ovaries specifically, you know, play a role in creation. We are active participants, and that's a profound position to be in, whether you give birth in your life or not. Um, To have a reproductive system is a specific experience that I think is very informative in many ways. Um, So, of course, people without that telling people with that they know better is ludicrous to me. And I think, you know, a lot of what that involves too is a, is deeply feeling, is the, the level of, of feeling. I actually, myself, I'm 52 now, and I just have been through menopause. And I notice how much, you know, when I encounter tragic things, I feel a little bit more not immune to the, like it, things that used to lay me flat and make me sob and unable to, like, I, I can't breathe through the reality of this. Now, even just having my reproductive system turned off, it's like, whoa, I, I am better equipped to emotionally weather this. It's very fascinating. I don't have to feel it all as deeply as I did even two years ago, you know? So it's really shown me even more starkly, like, what that means. 
Ani DeFranco is a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter and musician with more than 20 records under her belt. Her latest is last year's Revolutionary Love. Her children's book with illustrator Julia Matthew called The Knowing is set for release this March. And in the meantime, DeFranco is back on tour. You can find dates on her website, AniDeFranco.com, or at her label's website, that's RighteousBabe.com. Ani, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for your time. Just the of our bed Makes me crumble like the plaster Where you punch the wall beside my head And I try to draw the line But it ends up running down the middle of me Most of the time and Boys get locked up in some prison Girls get locked up in some house It don't matter if it's a warden Or lover or spouse You just can't talk to them No, you just can't reason You just can't leave And you just can't daughter, I was just eating bread and water, thinking nothing ever changes, and I was shocked. See the mistakes, each generation will just fade like a radio station. You try, you just gotta try, you just gotta try. While I was speaking with Ani DeFranco, WAMC's Josh Landis got the chance to speak with another outstanding singer-songwriter on her way through the Northeast. Joan Osborne is perhaps best known for her 90s hit, One of Us, but she has long proven herself a versatile interpreter of American musical institutions ranging from Motown and Bob Dylan to the Grateful Dead and the Blues. Her latest record, Radio Waves, was described by Pop Matters as a, quote, career retrospective inside a live album inside a rarities compilation, end quote. With Josh Landy, she spoke about her approach to some of the classics and her many years of abortion access activism. Overturning of Roe v. Wade has motivated some people, and I think you can kind of see that reflected in in some of these uh, election results across the country. You know, everybody was sort of talking about, oh, there's going to be a huge red wave, it's going to be a huge conservative takeover, and it doesn't seem to have done that. I feel, just from my personal perspective, that the pro-abortion and the uh, the abortion rights votes, those voters have come out because it's important to them. You know, they believe that abortion is health care for themselves, for their families, for their daughters, for their sisters, for their wives, for, for themselves. And, uh, and they're coming out and putting their money where their mouth is and voting in that way. I was looking back on some of your history of political activism, like getting banned from a venue in Houston back in the late 90s for talking about (laughs) Planned Parenthood. You know, if you could tell yourself back in 1997 that that same fight would be continuing, possibly on a much larger stage than it was then with the Supreme Court ruling, what would you say to yourself? Well, I think I would say to myself that the, you know, the work is valid. I feel like that issue, the issue of abortion rights, is one that very conservative politicians see as a way to manipulate voters so that they can retain power. I feel like it's a way of keeping women and uh, you know especially women of color, keeping them always defending this basic right so that they cannot 
come out and connect in public life in other ways. You know, if you have to continually fight just for your own bodily autonomy, you can't turn your attention to these other things. So I feel like it's a very cynical ploy to manipulate people in order to just retain power. You know, I do believe that there are people, I know that there are people who, you know, in their hearts, are uh, anti-choice and and that they do have those beliefs, whether it's religious beliefs or personal beliefs. And I respect those people. But I feel like they have been manipulated by people who are just trying to retain power. and, And that's what it looks like to me. I was looking at the performance of What Becomes of the Brokenhearted with the Funk Brothers mm-hmm. from the movie Standing in the Shadows of Motown, released 20 years ago uh, this year. I-, I wanted to ask you about tapping into the-, the Motown songbook and playing with these guys who provided you know, the backdrop to some of the most colorful and exciting American pop music ever. When you look back 20 years ago on, on that performance with the Funk Brothers, what comes to mind? Well, the first thing I remember is meeting them the first time, and they really had no idea who I was. They thought that I was the makeup girl because I came into the makeup trailer to meet them at first. So that was kind of, you know, (laughs) that, that was interesting. But the next scene that we did was a scene in the movie where they are kind of deconstructing the groove to the song. I heard it through the grapevine, the Marvin Gaye version. And they sort of went through by by banging on, you know, with spoons on, on tables and, and napkin holders, uh, how they had constructed that groove and put it together. And as it came together, I felt it and I was so excited that I started singing the song and they all looked at me and it was just this moment of like recognition and joy of like, oh, wow, this is going to be so much fun. Um, and from that time on, we were we were fast friends and it was it was so wonderful to you know, not only to meet them and to hear all the stories they were telling, but then to get on stage with them and to have them sound just like they sounded on those records, if not better. You know, they were such great musicians. They had everything that they had ever had, if not more so. And and that was just so exciting, you know, to be a performer and to be singing, uh, you know, in front of those guys. I just felt lifted up to the stratosphere. The song itself, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, it's an absolutely devastating lyric. And of course, in the Motown Mm. tradition, it's a devastating lyric accompanied by like the catchiest, you know, hooks and grooves you've ever heard. (laughs) Can can you tell me a little bit about what it means to interpret some of these iconic pieces of American pop music that, you know, Mm. are so rooted in, in this kind of spiritual agony? Well, you know, I think it all comes back to gospel music in a way, because, you know, gospel music comes from this place of acknowledging how hard life is and acknowledging that, you know, we are, you know, on this earth and we experience pain, but that there is this ultimate uplift in being connected to something larger than yourself. And whether that's your religion, whether it's God, or whether it's music and your humanity of your fellow human beings, that there is something that, you know, even though you acknowledge that there is pain, that there is joy to be found through that. As I walk this land of broken dreams, I have visions of many That was WAMC's Josh Landy speaking with singer Joan Osborne. She'll be back on tour starting in Texas this spring. You can find dates and learn more at her website, joanosborne.com.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. It's produced and hosted by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. And our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Ani DeFranco, Joan Osborne, and Josh Landis for participating in this week's episode. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at our website. That's wamcpodcast.org. There you can find episodes new and old and links to everything you need to know. We hope you'll join us next week, too. Until then, I'm Jesse King from 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night, 